Morning, everyone. Morning. Very, very warm welcome to Revelation Church, especially if it's your first time. If you're visiting, you're very, very welcome. And um, what we're going to be doing for the next little while is... Um, that. <laughs> They're excited. Um, I am too. Um, I'm going to be... Uh, teaching from the Bible for uh, for a little while. Um, we love, as Revelation Church, we believe the Bible is God's word and we want to make sure that we're faithfully teaching and preaching it week in, week out to make sure that we're uh, seeing how Jesus kind of is the fulfillment of the whole of it and seeing how we apply it to our lives. And uh, we believe that as we do that, we grow in godliness, we grow in joy, we grow in just life. It's, um, so we're going to do that for the next 30 minutes. So if you're new, that's what we, we do tend to do that um, a lot. And we, uh, we love doing that. And um, I really pray that it will serve you. Uh, but we're in, I was going to say we're in the middle of a series. We kind of, we've got this series that just kind of like pops up from time to time that we're doing called God Is at the moment. And what we're doing is basically theology. Okay, Theology, that word literally means the study of God. So we are doing theology today. We are studying God because what you believe about God is the most important thing about what you think about. Because the way you think about God will change the way that you act. If you believe that God is a particular way, you will tend to act in a particular way. So if you believe that God is a vindicative bully, you will tend to live a very fear-based life. If you believe that God is just someone who sweeps every single problem under the carpet, every single sin that's ever done, it's like, oh, I'll just overlook it, then you will not live with a great sense of the fact that you live as accountable to someone. And you will probably live very angry at the fact that many people who have committed horrific injustices in the past seem to have got away with it. So what you believe about God is a hugely, hugely important thing. And what we're doing today is we're looking at God is faithful. God is faithful. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word faithful. You might think of a husband and a wife. That might be one of, the, uh, one of the things you think of. You might think of a, a dog, a faithful friend. That's, I think, what, kind of one of the areas that the word faithful is used a lot in the English language. Because faithful essentially just means trustworthy. It's someone who's there all the time. Someone who is always there for you. And someone who essentially, when they say they're going to do something, you know they're going to do it. That's what faithful is. It's someone you can put your faith in. So when we say we put our faith in Jesus... The reason we do that is because he's faithful. If he wasn't faithful, there'd be no point putting your faith in him. There'd be no point trusting him. And we're going to look today at the fact that God is faithful. And when we realise that, that makes a huge difference to the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we live our lives. So um, that's what we're going to do for the next half an hour or so. And uh, the way I've decided to do it is... um, I'm going to tell the story of God's faithfulness, basically. So we're going to spend a lot of today telling a story, and it will involve certain people standing up here holding particular things for a relatively extended period of time. So thank you to those who've agreed for it. Um, but I'm just going to, I'm going to tell the story of, very, very quickly, the story of the Bible through the perspective of God's faithfulness. Because I think as we do that, and as we get to the point where we see how Jesus fits in, suddenly everything fits together in a much bigger way than if we just talk about God being faithful in the abstract. People don't tend to be faithful in the abstract. It's not kind of a bullet point abstract quality. It's something that's real and tangible. You say, that person's faithful because they did this, and they said they'd do this, and then they fulfilled it. And that's exactly the way it happens with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he says that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And I want to show you today that that is completely and utterly true. That God shows his faithfulness, his truthfulness to his promises most excellently in Jesus. That's the the climax of his faithfulness, if you want. So 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four particular people that God made promises to throughout the story today. And those are going to be the people who will be standing up here. And we're going to look at how when Jesus arrives and Jesus dies and rises from the dead, God shows his absolute and utter faithfulness to every single one of those promises. So does that sound good? That's the way, well, it's the way we're going to do it, so it, it better sound good. Um, every time I say that, I'm like, well, I haven't planned anything. If people suddenly go, no, actually, no, we're not up for that. Um, but So I'm going to just tell the story, so it might feel a little bit like storytelling, which I, I hope that's what it feels like. And um, hopefully we'll see as we go that God is a faithful God, and God, therefore, is a God that we can put our trust in and know that he is dependable, and we can rely and put our weight on him. He's faithful. So here goes the story. God, in the beginning, creates a universe and a world. And the whole point of this world is it's intended to be a place where his presence dwells. So God creates this world. And if you were to live at the time when Genesis was written, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, kind of the description of of creation, you would have looked at it and think, this sounds a little bit like reading a description of a temple being built. And the reason is, God is creating a temple when he creates the world. He creates a place where temples were the places where the gods in the ancient world were believed to live. And so God says, I'm creating this universe as a place where I am going to live by my presence. I'm going to dwell there, and I'm going to live with my creation. And actually, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to create um, loads and loads of stuff, animals and mountains and, and seas and just the whole universe, and I'm going to create as the climax of my creation, I'm going to create a human being. I'm going to create humans. And they are going to be the people who reflect what I'm like. And actually, that I'm going to walk with them, and I'm going to be in a special relationship with them. They're going to, they're going to relate to me in a way that bees and birds and fish and deer can't relate to, because they are different. They're made in my image. It's like you look at a human being and you think, that's a little bit like what God is like. And so God says, I'm going to create this amazing cosmos, this temple, and I'm going to put my presence in it. I want want it to be filled with people who look a little bit like me. So that as angels and animals and other human beings walk around, they think, that's what the God who rules and who is in charge of this place looks like. Isn't he amazing? That's how God designed the place to be. And he creates this universe as a temple, a place where his presence is going to dwell. And within that, he creates a garden in the Middle East. You might have heard of it. It's a place called Eden. So he creates this garden. And for those of you who know a little bit about temples, we don't really live in a, in a world where temples are everywhere. What you'd have right in the middle of a temple, and you have that, if you, if you know the Bible, you know that's right in the middle of the temple, is the Holy of Holies. And Eden actually is a little bit like the first ever Holy of Holies. It's the place where God says, okay, the whole of the world is going to be a place that my presence dwells. But at the moment, my presence is concentrated in a very specific way in this area of the Middle East called Eden. And I'm going to put a couple of human beings in there, a guy called Adam and his wife called Eve. And their aim is to keep that particular garden and to keep it pure and to keep it free from evil and little by little as they have kids and they multiply and their kids spread to the ends of the earth that garden will grow and grow and grow and so suddenly this holy of holies the place where God's presence is meant to dwell will grow and eventually the whole world will be filled with the presence of God in a really strong manifest way human beings if you read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 you realize that God used to walk in the garden of Eden with Adam and with Eve Imagine that. Imagine walking around with God. It's what God created the cosmos for. It's what he created the universe for. He created it to live and dwell in it. Unfortunately, our first 
parents, Adam, Adam and Eve, decided that they wanted to do their own thing. And so what happens is, is God's planted this garden. He says, you can, you can feel free. You're free. Have all the freedom you want. But there's this one thing that I don't want you to do. There's this tree in the midst of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. Because that kind of knowledge is reserved for me. That kind of knowledge of getting to decide what is right, what is wrong, and getting to kind of act as the judge over, in a large-scale way over whole creation, that's reserved for me. Don't take that. You've got freedom for everything else. Unfortunately, a, the, Satan, the enemy, disguised as a serpent, comes into the garden and starts speaking to Eve, the uh, husband of Adam, uh, the, sorry, wife of Adam. And he says, you know what, if you eat from this tree, it's, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. Don't worry. When you eat of it, you're going to become like God. That's why God doesn't want you to eat it. He's, he's jealous. He doesn't want you to eat that. And so Eve ends up being tricked into this. And as a result of, being tr- of, of this tricking that happens, and Adam also ends up eating of the fruit at the same time, a curse comes upon the whole of creation. This isn't like a kid taking a cookie out of a jar. It might seem like a bit of an overreaction. You're like, what, they ate an apple and the, the whole of creation comes under a curse? I wouldn't do that with my kids. This is a little bit more like the President of the United States at a time of major crisis deciding to just abdicate his power. Human beings were meant to protect God's creation. They were meant to protect the garden, keep the Holy of Holies safe, and they have let evil in. They've let a serpent in who is going to, and as a result of that, the whole of creation comes under a curse. And what happens is God ends up cursing the serpent and the woman and the man. And whilst God is cursing the serpent, he speaks a promise that relates to the woman, to Eve. And this is the point where our first volunteer is going to come up and so just to help us remember the promises that are being made. So this is Sarah, who is now called Eve. So if you could stand this side, left to right, we'll go for them and hold that. And I will try and whisper the story so you're not standing there for hours. Um, so he speaks a promise to, well, it's part of a curse, but it involves a promise and it relates to the woman. So he's cursing the serpent and he says, if we can have the verse up, I will put enmity, which means kind of war between you and the woman and between your offspring. So imagine the serpent's kind of on the ground between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, as part of the curse that's given to the snake at this point, God is making a promise. There is a descendant of the woman who is going to come one day and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, this problem is going to be undone, not, not through animals, not through, I don't know, angels, but through a human being, a descendant of this woman is going to come along and crush the head of the serpent which is a pretty cool promise. So kind of the first woman in the image of God in the whole of creation is bearing this promise. One day, someone who is one of my descendants is going to come along and is going to crush the head of the serpent. God doesn't make it easy for himself to be faithful. That's one of the things I want us to remember. He doesn't make it easy for himself. He doesn't make small promises. He makes big promises to seemingly insignificant people and that means that it then surely ends up being quite difficult to be faithful. Like if you want to be faithful, you kind of think, okay, what can I manage to fulfill? God says, I'm going to choose a very small, relatively insignificant person. I'm going to make a gigantic promise to them. And that's kind of the promise that Eve is bearing at this point. 
So humanity at this point is cast out of God's presence. It's an, it's an absolute tragedy. They're, they've given up what they were meant and created for. They were created to represent God, to guard his temple against impurity, to guard his kingdom against, en, uh, against enemies from the outside. And they've failed. They've given that up. They've abdicated their responsibility at the, most, at the most desperate of times. And as a result, they are cast out of God's presence because God cannot live in the presence of sin. But there's this promise that one day a descendant is is going to come and is going to undo this problem. And the next chunk of the story is really kind of not very easy reading. It's not very pretty. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot, you might have heard of the flood, for example. That comes in the next part of the story. Humanity just gets to this point where it's so evil and rebellious against God that God says, I'm just going to, I'm going to wipe out the whole of them, but I'm going to keep this guy called Noah and he's going to restart my humanity out of them. And out of, out of that, you then get this this group of people who gather and say, we don't want to worship God, we want to make a name for ourselves. And they build this big city called Babel and they build a tower and God looks at them and says, the pride of humanity and their, their sense of we want to make a name for ourselves is too much. And he scatters them by confusing their languages. He scatters them in judgment around. And that's kind of, you're reading this thinking, when's this going to end? When is the serpent crusher going to come? At which point God calls a pagan worshipper from the Middle East from a place called Ur, which is kind of modern-day Iraq kind of area. And it's a man called Avram. And he later got his name changed to Abraham. And God made a promise to him. And so if Abraham, I think that was Tom Durrant. Is he around? There he is. If he can come up, he's going to hold the next promise. And so God speaks to Abraham. If we can have the, uh, the words come up on the slide, you can stand next to Eve. Now, the Lord said to Abraham. So this is before his name changes to, to Abraham. Um, now remember, this is just a random pagan worshipper. He, he does not know God at this point. God appears to him and says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise. Random man from the Middle East, and God appears to him. And there are, there are some pretty big empires going on at this point. God chooses one man and says, through your descendants, the nations are going to be blessed. Through your descendants, so we've got the promise given to Eve. There's a, someone who's going to come, one of your seed, one of your offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That is going to come through the line of Abraham now. And through your descendants, all of the nations are going to be blessed. This whole problem is going to be undone. Again, gigantic promises. God is not making it easy for himself to be faithful. Small man in the midst of a big world, I'm going to bless you and all the nations will be blessed through you. So what happens is Abraham ends up having a son called Isaac and Isaac ends up having a son called Jacob. We're going very quickly here, by the way. Jacob has 12 sons, which later become the 12 tribes of God's people who are called Israel. And what happens is they end up moving down to Egypt at one point because there's a famine in their land. So they move down to Egypt for a little while because there happens to be food there. And Jacob, whose name has been, been turned into to Israel, is, ends up meeting with his sons as he's about to die. And what you do if you were living in that part of the world and you were a particularly kind of old person, you were about to die and you had lots of sons, is you would bless them. Before you died, you would speak to each one of them and you would speak good things to them. It's kind of a little bit like what we mean by, by prophecy. You say, oh, here's what I see for your future. Here's where I see you going. Here's, and obviously, when it's inspired by God, it's very much prophetic. 
And one of his sons was a guy called Judah. So if Judah could come up now, who did I ask to be Judah? Yes, there we go. Chris is going to be Judah. One of his sons, so one of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, eventually, but this is kind of the original Judah before it turns into a tribe. He gets this particular blessing and this particular promise. So remember, we've got offspring is going to come crush the head of the serpent. That's going to be traced through Abraham and all the nations are going to be blessed with his descendants. And now we get one particular descendant of Abraham who has this promise made to him. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, which is the kind of kingly symbol, isn't it? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine. Which, strange imagery, but basically you wouldn't wash your garments in wine. Well, it stains, but mainly because it's very expensive. You'd wash it in water. He's just saying, you're just such lavish plentitude is going to come your way. You're going to rule over the nations and the scepter, the kingly rule, will not depart from you. There will always be a kingdom that belongs to the tribe of Judah. Huge promise to make. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So we've got offspring of Eve, you will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, we're narrowing the promise down. It's going to be one of your descendants and through your descendants, the nations are going to be blessed. Judah is one of Abraham's descendants and Judah gets the promise. There's going to be an everlasting kingdom that comes from your tribe. The scepter won't depart from you. You're always going to be, there's going to be a worldwide, the obedience of the peoples will come to you. There's going to be a worldwide kingdom that comes from you. What happens in the next part of the story which, again, God is not making it easy to, to be faithful for this whole time. Because at this point, there's about 70 to 100 of them, really. And God's making this, oh, by the way, yeah, your descendants, they're going to rule over the whole world. It's quite a big promise to make. How is God going to remain faithful to that? So the next part of the story, after a few hundred years, God's people come out of Egypt. They get given God's laws and they get taken into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham in the promise that we read. And eventually they end up getting kings. They start off with a king who's not that great called Saul. And, but afterwards they get a king called David who is after God's heart. And he ends up managing to unite all of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is something that Saul hadn't managed to do, nor any of the rulers before him. He unites all of the 12 tribes. They're all of one heart. They're all one single people. And David pleases God and loves God. And David is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And he loves God, rules as a good king. And one day he decides, I want to build a temple for God. Because up until now, God had been living in something called the tabernacle, which is a, basically a mobile temple. It's a, a tent, a very nice tent, but it's still a tent. And they carried, essentially carried it around with them. And whenever they moved from one place to another, they would put the tent back up and then God's presence would come and fill it. And David says, I want to build a temple for God. And God says, actually, no, I'm not going to allow you to build a temple your son's going to build a temple, but I'm going to make a promise to you. And so if David, whoever that was, oh, that's Luke, wasn't it? If you could come up, and this is the final promise that we have, that we obviously God makes more promises in the Old Testament, but these are the ones we're focusing on today. And this is a word that God speaks to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's talking about Solomon, who's David's son. He's going to build the temple and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So God rejected Saul because of his rebellion, but he's making a promise here to David saying, your descendants, regardless of what they do, I will not remove, I will not reject them in the way that I rejected Saul. And he says, my steadfast love will not depart from him uh, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And here's the big one. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan, who's the prophet who's speaking um, to David, spoke to David. Huge promise. Your descendants will rule over Israel forever. That's a pretty big promise to make. Particularly when, I mean, Israel was a relatively big kingdom at this point. Nothing by international standards, but pretty big. But still, to make this kind of promise, you are going to have an everlasting kingdom, is absolutely huge. So we've got these promises. The offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and undo the problem of evil. That offspring is going to come through Abraham and through these, this descendant, through these, his offspring, the nations are going to be blessed. The whole problem is going to be undone. And we narrow it down. It comes from the tribe of Judah and God promises to Judah there's going to be a kingdom that is everlasting that comes from you. And again, when we narrow it down a bit more, God speaks that promise to David. Your kingdom will always be sure, but certain before me. Now here's the point where if you read the rest of the story, you start asking yourself some questions. Because with a few hiccups, it was relatively kind of, from Abraham onwards, relatively uphill. God's people had kind of not been necessarily that faithful, but essentially they'd got to the point where under David's son Solomon, they had the largest empire that they ever had. And what happens is it all tends to go downhill from that point onwards. Solomon's son ends up rebelling against God. And so what God does is he ends up dividing the kingdom of Israel in half. And some tribes go up to the north, some tribes go up to the, down to the south, and within a few hundred years, the tribes in the north have been completely destroyed and the tribes in the south have been taken into exile into a place called Babylon for their sin. And the temple has been destroyed. And this is the point where you get the book of Lamentations that's written, where it's just, you read Lamentations, it is not fun reading, but that's the kind of, the way that God's people are feeling where they're like, we've come from so far. We've come from David and Solomon and this amazing promise given and now we're in exile and we were tiny people compared to, to what we thought we would be. I thought you'd made a massive promise to Abraham saying that you wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to number the people of Israel. How come we're now in a tiny, small part, we're, we're a tiny people in the middle of a massive Babylonian empire and we have no king reigning over us? What, what has happened to the promise that God had made to David? There's no king reigning in Israel at this point. And Israel return. There are prophets that are speaking, God is still faithful. Don't give up. God is still faithful. But it's getting harder and harder for some people to believe that God is still remaining faithful at this point. And they return back to their land after exile. And they think, this is it. We're going to finally see the fulfillment of these promises. And they rebuild their cities. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. And it's nowhere near as good as it, as it used to be. It's nowhere near as big as it used to be. God's presence doesn't seem to be filling the temple like it did in the days of Solomon. What's happened? And to 
And to, to top it all off, Israel is not independent. Israel is a tiny kingdom in the midst of a gigantic empire, which is now Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and they're oppressed, and they are, do not have their own freedom. And essentially, we get to the point where Jesus is born, thinking, how on earth is God going to be faithful to these gigantic promises? Through your, descendants, I, through your descendant, I will crush the head of the serpent. Through your descendants, Abraham, the nations will be blessed. Through your descendants, Judah, there will be an everlasting kingdom. And you know what? It's going, to be a, it's going to be a son or a descendant of David, and his throne will last forever. And when Jesus is born, we're talk, talking about a very small people group in the midst of a gigantic Roman empire at this point. But Jesus comes along, and Jesus demonstrates that God has and is remaining faithful to his promises. And what we're going to do is we are going to read Revelation 5 now, which will take a bit of explaining as I go. And we're going to see how every single one of these promises is fulfilled through Jesus and how God has remained completely and utterly faithful to his people, even at times where they couldn't see his faithfulness. He has remained faithful. So if we can have the next slide up. There's a bit of symbolism going on here, which I'll explain as, as, as I go. But this is the Apostle John, who this is after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and the Holy Spirit's been poured out. So John is a dis- disciple of Jesus. And he has this vision that is written down in the book of Revelation of God's absolute sovereignty over everything and Christ's victory. And he sees this in chapter five. And he says, I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So that's God. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So this scroll represents the unfolding of history. It represents... God's purposes for history coming to their climax, as long as that scroll remains shut, history just ends up essentially repeating on loop. And these kind of promises are not the kind of promises that can work in a history that repeats on loop. And John, by the way, is a disciple who is undergoing a lot of pressure and persecution at this point. So he's hearing this and he's thinking, no one is worthy to bring history to its climax. We're doomed which is why he's crying. It's not just an odd reaction to a piece of paper being rolled up. He's saying, what are we going to do? We are a persecuted church. If this scroll remains shut, the promise to Eve is unfulfilled. If this scroll remains shut, the promise to Abraham will not be fulfilled. If this scroll remains shut, the promise to Judah will not be fulfilled. And if this scroll remains shut, the promise to David will not be fulfilled. God will not have been faithful. And I just can't compute that in my mind. And so he weeps loudly. And then in one sweeping verse, all of these promises come to fulfillment. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
Don't worry too much about the detail there. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders who happened to be in the heavenly court at this point fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, your heel was bruised and by your blood you've ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation in your descendants all the nations will be blessed and John is hearing at this point that is happening that has happened because the line of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered and the nations will be blessed as a result of that you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth an everlasting kingdom through Jesus. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Or you might paraphrase it looking at this. Worthy is the descendant of the woman whose heel was bruised so that he could crush the head of the serpent to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. In Jesus, he is the true descendant of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, even as his own heel is bruised in the process. He's the lamb that was slain, but yet he's the lamb that was slain who has been raised from the dead and has conquered over the serpent. He is the true descendant of Abraham, who, through whom all of the nations will be blessed. Through his death and resurrection, he's redeemed people from every tribe and language and nation and people group. He's the true descendant of Judah, from whom the scepter will not depart. He will reign forever and ever, and his kingdom will not fail and he will, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember the language of lion. Judah's like a lion. This is the true lion of the tribe of Judah who roars. And when he roars, everything goes silent. But yet when you turn around, you look at him and you think, it's a lamb. He's the lion and the lamb. And he is the, not only the true descendant of David, he's the root of David. So in a strange way, he's actually, like, it's telling us here, he actually existed before David. He's not just David's great, 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 however many times grandson. He is the very person that David had his, even had his origin from. God has been completely faithful in Jesus. And I imagine all these people will be standing there on the final day looking around going, wow, God has been completely faithful. Eve will be looking, looking around saying, he did it. One of my descendants did cross the head of the serpent. Abraham will be looking around saying, oh, wow. There are people from every tribe and every nation and every people group. Judah will be looking around and David will be looking around going, wow, he is reigning forever and ever. He's one of my descendants. He is reigning forever and ever. And the nations have been set free from Satan's sin and death through him. God has remained faithful and he is worthy because of that. And so that's the story of God's faithfulness in Jesus. And we just, you guys, thank you for standing up there. You can now sit down. Cheers. Thank you very much. I realise that's a lot of just standing there. Um, that's kind of, I suppose, 
we could go into a lot more depth and certain elements of the story, but God has remained faithful all the way throughout, even when it didn't look like it. And during praise, I was reminded of a, there's a passage in Lamentations 3, which is, you read the first part of the chapter, and it's very, very dark language. Again, written when Judah and Israel were feeling at their lowest, and saying, he's made my teeth grind on gravel. He's driven his arrows into my kidneys. It's just raw language of someone complaining to God, saying, where are you? But yet at the end says, but this I will bring to my mind, and this I will remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. At the darkest of times, God has remained faithful, and he has remained faithful ultimately through Jesus. And so what does that mean for us? That's a large scale. If God has been faithful in that cosmic, cataclysmic kind of way, then we can trust him. We can trust him that he is faithful to present us blameless on the last day. So what Paul, the Apostle Paul writes that to the, the Corinthians. He says, God is faithful who will, present, who will present you blameless on the final day. Read the rest of the letter to the Corinthians and you'll have a hard time believing that because they were a an absolute mess of a church. But God says, my trust that you will be presented blameless on the last day isn't in the fact that you're committing all of these horrific sins. It's in the fact that God is faithful and he is going to present you blameless on the last day. And I know that. God is faithful in the fight against sin. He also writes later on in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will, with every temptation, provide a way out. There are some of us here today who may need to hear, God is faithful in the fight against sin. You're not on your own. It's not not about you gritting your teeth trying to get out. God is faithful. He will provide a way out. There's a, a, a bit at the end of Jude, which is a letter written to a church which is experiencing a lot of false teaching and lots of people being tempted by this false teaching. And it looks like it involved a lot of sexual immorality and horrific stuff. And Jude's writing this letter. And all he's got is this letter, really. I don't think he's... It doesn't look like he's got any plans or ability to visit the church. He's just got this letter and he writes it and says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's like, you know what? I can trust that God is the one who's able to keep you from stumbling here. God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you from whatever it is that you think, I just don't know how to get out of this. God is able to keep you. You can trust him. You can put your weight on him. You can put your faith in him because he's faithful. He's faithful in the darkest of times. It might be a family situation that you're just like, what on earth do I do here? Is God even, is God even in this? It might be health, a health situation where you think, I would not have planned this for my life. And God, how does that work with the promises that you've made for me? God is faithful. I imagine that's probably what the Israelites thought when they were in, in, in slavery or in, in Babylon. It's probably what they thought when they were under Roman rule. But yet God remained faithful throughout it. God is also faithful to wrap all things up. He will faithfully bring this world and this age to its climax. There will be a time where pain stops. There will be a time where suffering stops. There will be a time when family breakdowns stop, where sickness stops, where death stops. And God is faithful because he has made a promise. Through your descendants, the nations will be blessed. And through your offspring, the head of the serpent will be crushed. And that will involve the defeat of death at the end of time. And finally, God is faithful. And I think I want to end with this one. God is faithful to himself. If we can have the final uh, passage up. And I want to end with this one because when we talk about God being faithful, 
I think our mind automatically goes to how can he be faithful to me? Or how can he be faithful to the promises he's made? Which is true. But on a larger scale, the one that God is ultimately faithful to is himself. So this is 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy. That's actually the same word as faithful in Greek. The saying is faithful. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's absolute and utter faithfulness is ultimately to himself. And it's really important that we understand that. Because actually, that helps us in two areas. It helps us also realise that God's faithfulness is anchored in something much bigger than a promise made just to human beings. It's anchored in his faithfulness to himself. He has committed himself to it, which means we have got something so big to rely on because God remains, he can't deny himself. God can't stand there and say, oh, I deny myself. That's just, it's a logical impossibility. It cannot happen. He remains faithful, though everyone else might be unfaithful. And the second reason that that's really important to remember is because it's, it's, it's essential that we remember that the whole world is not about us, ultimately. The whole creation is not about us, it's about him. And on the final day, if every single person who has ever followed Jesus, and this won't happen because God has promised it won't, if every single person who has ever followed Jesus denies him and turns away from him, God will remain faithful to himself. There won't be some kind of cosmic thing where everyone says, oh, you've been unfaithful to yourself. God will say, no, I cannot deny myself. I am faithful ultimately to myself. But that provides huge comfort for us as well because God has pledged himself to present his church blameless on the final day and to bless all nations. And actually, as we see people saved and added, we are looking at God's faithfulness to his promise. And actually, if you're here today, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And it might be the first time you've you've been, you might have been a few times, you're just thinking, I I wouldn't call myself a Christian, not too sure about Jesus um, and so on. Can I encourage you, look into God's faithfulness. Look into God's faithfulness because every single person who is here is actually an example of the fact that God is faithful. This is something bigger than just, oh, this is a club that we're part of and we pledge allegiance to it. This is about God saying, I will undo all evil that is in my creation. And he invites us to be part of that. He invites us to be part of this new creation. And so my plea to you, if you don't know him today, is please chat to someone off. You can come and chat to me, chat to Rich or chat to someone who, who brought you. But we would love to explore further and, and help you um, in, your, in your journey towards discovering who Jesus is. But what we're going to do is we're going to praise God by singing about how faithful he is. And we're going to take bread and wine because that's an amazing way of remembering how he is faithful. He, he remained faithful to his promises to the point of going to the cross. He was faithful even unto death even death on a cross. And we remember that when we take bread and wine. We participate in the body and in the, the blood of Christ. And it's, it's an amazing moment to remember God's faithfulness. So we're going to do that together. So if, we can, if you're able, if you want to stand, and we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time praising God and taking communion together. Father, I thank you that we know that you are faithful. And I thank you that we have discovered that that faithfulness comes ultimately through Jesus and that he is faithful. Thank you that he was so faithful to you. Father, thank you that Jesus was faithful to the Father in a way that no human being has ever been faithful before. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that he was so faithful that he went to the cross. 
that we can put our weight on him. We can trust him. We can know that because he has come and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the root of David, he's the true serpent crusher, he's the true offspring of Abraham, we know you are faithful. And we thank you for the gospel and we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on that as we sing and as we take bread and wine together to remember what you did for us. We pray, Father, we'd know your faithfulness throughout this week and you would make us a faithful people as a result of knowing that, Lord God. We pray that you would help us to be filled with the Spirit and aware of your presence with us and that we would glorify Jesus as we go forward. Amen.